need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another China Business Cast. This is Shlomo here, and we're in episode number 86. Mike is here too. Hey, Mike. How are you? Hey, hey, how you doing, Shlomo? The number's getting up there. 86 is getting, well, 88's a lucky number in China, right? So we're almost there. Who's thinking? Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're in your holidays. How, how are you doing? Holidays are great. Uh, it's now the high holidays in Israel and in the whole Jewish world, actually. It's a holiday. This holiday is called Sukkot. And it's a week long. So we're seeing family and friends. So it's been very relaxed and very little work. And... We spoke just before the this recording about the Mid-Autumn Festival. And then Mike says, yeah, well, there was also this, the, the, the Mid-Autumn Festival. Like I told him, you know, China Chinese calendar is, is also a lunar calendar and also the Jewish one. That's why a lot of Chinese holidays are, are correlating with, with the Jewish one. So it's, it's actually the same date. So it's every uh, mid of the month. That's when the holiday starts. And that's, I think, when also the Mid-Autumn Festival was. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the... I don't really understand. So it's based, lunar means moon. So that means it's based on the count, the moon. I mean, it's, I don't. So the thing is this, the, the, you see the moon in the sky and every round is, uh, around 30 days. It can be 21 or 30 days, at least in the Jewish calendar. Um, and then, you know, it's the middle of the month when the moon is full. And this is when the holiday starts. And also in China, unless it's, uh, polluted and then you can't see the moon. It's true. The moon is humongous right now. It's seriously huge. So that is true. Yes. So we're and a bit after the end of, after the middle of the month. So now it's, will get smaller and smaller for 15 days and then it will disappear for like a day or two and then it'll start quote unquote grow again. Mm. And you're taking a trip as well. We are taking a trip. We're finally decided that we're going to go to Sri Lanka. Um, and that's going to be for about three, four months in November. So we're planning up, no tickets yet, but uh, we're about to buy them in the next, uh, I assume, a uh, week or 10 days. That's going to be exciting. So uh, expect some recordings from, from Sri Lanka. We managed to find out that the internet there is okay. It's not as fast as in Israel or even Thailand or China, but it's okay. What about you? You also okay. have some events going on. Yeah, I've been a um, cross-border matchmaker again in October. We did one last year in Shenzhen. I'll be, I'll be back to China for that. Uh, October 26th, it's a, it's a one-day event on a Friday where it's, we're testing different formats, but this is purely roundtables and connecting with different experts. Actually, we have some people from Israel coming and it's, it's going to be interesting. We have a couple different, more in the Amazon world coming up. Um, so. It's getting exciting. Really trying to bridge bridge these borders and break down these borders. Where I don't get political, but it seems like a lot of countries are putting walls up. We're trying to take walls down, or at least connect people more. And for this, you're going to China for only one day. That's impressive. Uh, well, I'll be there more. I mean, of course, there's, <laughs> there's event stuff, and my you know actually it's a holiday in Thailand during that week, so it worked out actually uh, pretty well. Oh, that's cool. All these holidays coming up. Uh, yeah. And we have announcements. As always, we try to talk about things happening. Uh, one is, yeah, I think listeners, regular listeners know, I think every time Shola and I do an intro, we're like, oh, do we have any reviews? Let's check. And we're checking for reviews. No new reviews. So 
We are sad, Rachel. <laughs> we can't say every time because we do have new reviews from time to time, but we need much, much more, many, many more. So guys, go there, go to the app, leave review on China Business Cast. That will help yeah. us. Well, first it will help the listeners find it and it will be much more popular. Um, and the second thing, it will make us much, much happier, especially Mike. I, I get happy when I see a review. We like reading them. <laughs> we really like reading them, guys. Yeah. So please bring them on. And the other announcement is Grace, our amazing uh, producer. She's doing great and and uh, keeping things rolling. She's also getting us set up on Shimalaya, which is the basically the iTunes of China, I'd say, right? So I know some listeners can't ac- can't access this. Yeah, we had podcasts. We had problems of uh, listeners from China who can't access um, our podcast, um, and they said you should use Himalaya, Himalaya, Himalaya. So finally, we found the time, and Grace did that. And now, when you go to Himalaya app and you search for China Business Cast, you can find us. So just do that. Go to Himalaya, search for China Business Cast, hit subscribe, and we'll be in your ear every time we publish. Great. It's funny. China Business Cast is blocked in China. Well, anyway, that's life. <laughs> it's my fault. I'm sorry. I, I, say, I say something bad. Uh, no, I mean about being blocked in China, not the guest. The, 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 our show is not downloading in China for some people. But uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I did the intro today. Sorry. I just saying about the blocked in China thing, but Shimalaya will hopefully solve that in other ways. But yeah, I did the interview. This one was a this one was a very deep and long one. We had an amazing guest. He's also a content creator, Gene Shu. We discussed his name as well and a pronunciation. We, he's got uh, over 20 years in cross-culture management, business development. We have a pretty good introduction of him that when I him and I did the interview. So I'll, I'll leave you tune into that but uh this is this is a fun one so i i I really think this will be one of our more popular shows awesome tune in so let's go in thank you everybody for tuning into our china business cast podcast we are with gene shu if i say your name that we were just talking before the show i think it's interesting conversation about names you know my name also gets uh mispronounced quite a bit but um it's shoe shoe like almost third tone Uh, it's it's shoe as in second tone second tone shoe okay yeah uh if you speak if you speak chinese yeah okay yeah great but being born in the united states uh in the time period in which i was born there were no other not just no other chinese people there were no other asian people wow yeah okay i grew up first grade through 12th grade i was the only asian person in my entire elementary school and high school wow so i had to basically help people pronounce my name to avoid you know any kind of additional discrimination or anything like that got it got it all right well that fits for the topic i mean for your background so you're an abc american born chinese with over yes yeah over 20 years in cross-culture management and biz dev consulting between in apec and greater china so you started to do this in 2004 i'm just kind of going through your bio and you had your first permanent assignment in shanghai 2012 for the APAC of uh, German B2B manufacturing and 
Yeah, it's quite a long. We'll put this on the show notes, but yeah, you have so much experience. It's it's uh it's great to have you. So you're with uh, EMEChina.us, and it's the EME yeah. China Consultants, which helps coaching uh, people for um, self awareness and soft skill development for doing business in China. With uh, of course, speak fluent Chinese so, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so my first, uh, you know, so so this is a business podcast for China. My first assignment to Asia and China was technically in 1996. And that's when an American or U.S. manufacturer uh, sent me to Taiwan as the Taiwan country manager. Nice. So that that was my first experience working in Asia, working in an Asian culture and having to speak Mandarin Chinese for business. Uh, when you look at my bio, my first time for business in mainland China was 2004. And basically, once I started doing business in mainland China, it's been almost 90% China, even though I touch on all the other, other countries in Asia, like Japan, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. But basically, the focus of my business experience over the past 10 to 12 years has really been mainland China. And the focus of my business, because I've always been bilingual, and not only have I been bilingual doing business in China, but all of my personal relationships have also these people. So my ex-wife I met in Taiwan in 1996, she was Taiwanese. Okay. And then, and then um, I, I was divorced once and my current wife, even though we met in the U S she was actually from mainland China. Okay. So, so I basically, experience on a day-to-day basis in my professional life and and my personal life, how to navigate these value differences, these cultural dichotomies, uh, and how to achieve greater harmony with uh, the people that you're in a relationship with or the people that you're working with. Yeah. Well, talking about Taiwan, Hong Kong, mainland China, I think well, that's obviously a very touchy subject, I think, in uh, in internet forums, but there are, it's not really on my outline today, but I think there's definitely cultural differences even between those cultures, you would say, right? I mean, I don't know if this oh. is PC correct. You know, it's a little bit dangerous topic, maybe, but uh, I think it's... Co- no, I think it's important. It's important, especially for your audience. Um, so politically, there are a lot of... Uh, ideological differences between Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China. Uh, Hong Kong now is officially part of mainland China or part of China, and and Taiwan has never been recognized, at, at least except for the you know the few dozen or so countries. It's not recognized as so politically. Uh, China considers Taiwan part of China. Even the U.S. administration follows the quote-unquote one China policy. So politically, uh, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong are actually all one country. And that's really the uh, politically correct way to to really refer to that, especially if you're doing business in China. Now, culturally, Taiwan, mainland China, and Hong Kong is I would almost say is almost completely different. Yeah. But even within China, as you know, because you've you know you lived there, you work yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, there are cultural differences between 
all the different provinces within China. I mean, the culture in Beijing is slightly different than the one in Shanghai, is different than the one in Guangzhou or Shenzhen. And then when you get into like a second tier city or third tier city or even fourth tier and more rural, it's a completely different culture than what you experience in the cities. So one of the things that I always advise uh, either my colleagues or my clients is, you know, China is not homogeneous. Mm-hmm. So really that we have to be politically correct and, and decide whether we want to think of Taiwan, Hong Kong and China as one country or not. It's just each province it's within true. China, each city within China, every age demographic, yep. you know, whether you are born in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Qing Ho, Baling Ho, Jiuling Ho. It depends on how old you are. You have a completely different worldview because the experience that you grew up with within China and that of your parents and how you were raised would be completely different than somebody who was just born maybe five to 10 years apart from you. So uh, there are a lot of these nuances that a lot of foreigners don't really understand about China that I think are important to highlight. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, I mean, we try to we try not to get too political. And I think it's true for the business side. There's so much cultural differences. And I swear it was like last week, somebody was talking about selling all of China, like everybody in China is going to buy my new invention or my my cool brand product. But, you know, I, there's every yeah, like you said, not just Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China, but every province you know, like generation, they're all completely different strategies and and uh, and people, you know, people you need in your team and, and, and relationships and everything. So. So, yeah, it's totally true. Um, so for the first main point I want to talk about is, uh, you know, when you talk to a client or people, you know, at an event or what's mindset for China business, what what would you say? Well, we can just kind of take away from exactly what, what you just started talking about. So, um, you know, when, when foreigners, so, uh, when, when I use the word foreigner now, I'm talking about non-Chinese people. And then uh, based on the context of what we better understand, we're referring mainly to Westerners. And in my case, I'm, I'm an American. So from an American perspective or from a Western perspective, it's the mindset when you go into China is, well, it's like all of these political issues. It's really, it really doesn't matter what you believe. When when you as a foreigner, when you as an American, uh, when you decide to go to China for business, uh, it's always nice that what you believe, you almost have to kind of forget that. Hmm. Because if you if you believe too strongly in certain values that are not aligned with Chinese values and you express those openly, it, the only outcome is that it can actually cause you harm. I mean, not physical harm, but it can cause you harm as far as your reputation, as far as your guanxi, and as far as um, willingness for other people to work with you. So I'll give you the, I'll give you the, um, the easy example for, for people to understand. Uh, I'm an American. So in America, we believe a lot of basic fundamental human rights are the rights of everyone. And and we're really passionate about 
you know, our basic freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press and all of that stuff. And what most Americans don't really understand is when you go to China and you try to have a debate with a Chinese person that, you know, them, you know, wouldn't you like to have more freedom of press? Or wouldn't you like to be able to criticize, the, you know, President Xi openly? I mean, those kinds of questions uh, really just kind of, in my opinion, that really shows how ignorant a lot of American people yeah. are when they go to China. And the example that I always give is uh, the most divisive fundamental human right here in the United States is the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, there are actually more guns than there are people. And and it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't really matter what your political affiliation is uh, there. Everybody believes there's a fundamental right to bear arms. But does that go extend into assault rifles and automatic weapons and all that stuff? That's obviously a political debate. And, and, and a lot of the liberal people here in the United States really like to talk about, you know, the terrorist events where people do mass killings with guns and and how these deranged people get access to guns and and, and all that stuff. But we at least 50 percent of the population believe that gun rights is a right. Now, I always contrast this with with what's going on in China. So in China, almost no one has a gun. In fact, uh, I have relatives, direct relatives of my wife who are actually who are actually police officers and they don't carry guns. So only like special police, not every police officer is issued a gun. Only police officers that actually need guns mm. would actually have guns. And actually every bullet has to be registered. So if you if you're a police officer and you have a gun, if you ever fire your gun, you have to write a report for each bullet that you fire. And and that's why, because generally speaking, you don't need guns. And, and the example that I always give is, you know, there are terrorist incidences in China. I mean, you think about yeah. uh, what's going on in the in the Xinjiang region yeah. with yeah. some of the, some of the Muslim community there. But when terrorists in China commit terrorist acts, they don't use guns; they use knives. Yep. So, so if you just think about that in context then you really, as an American, you really start to understand how different China is culturally. And, and understanding the dichotomies of how Chinese culture differs from a Western culture and American culture is really, in my opinion, the key to developing Guanxi relationships. So yeah. all of us who live in China, who work in China, whether we deal with government officials or not, we all understand how important Guanxi is. We all understand how important the giving and receiving of face is. Uh, the problem is, is most Westerners or most Americans don't really fully understand the implications in the context of how important developing Guanxi relationship means and how that is different than just developing good business relationships with people in your own country. And, and that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges for most foreigners when they when they do business in China. Make makes sense. Yeah, you kind of lead into the next point is yeah, guanxi mentioned it uh, it's a popular word it means, you know, relationship in Chinese and you know, all the books and I think you would agree guanxi is 
the most important. I think that's true in, the, in anywhere in the world, right? Where, you know, relationships in the U.S., relationships in China. But what what would you say is uh, how is Chinese Guanxi different from you know Western Guanxi or Western yeah. relationships? Yeah. So the, what you said is 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 exactly right on point. Um, you know, there eighty percent of what it means to develop a relationship in any country is part of Guanxi. And so the question becomes, how is Chinese guanxi different than forming relationships in, say, in the U.S. or in an American culture? And the way that I usually explain this to clients is, is first of all, guanxi is based on a system of reciprocity. Okay, and the system of reciprocity is often is really an exchange of goodwill. And what happens is. In Chinese culture, a lot of times the exchange of goodwill is the exchange of money or favors. And a lot of Westerners view that as, quote unquote, unethical or corrupt. But in Chinese culture, just deeply embedded into the culture. And and to really answer the question, how is Guanxi relationships in China different than Guanxi relationships out of China? It really comes down fundamentally to... Um, the, it, it comes down to a different concept of time. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. So when typical Western companies or Americans go over to China and they enter into negotiations with Chinese people, uh, when you go into negotiations, you go with uh, a very fixed purpose. And that purpose generally is, is, at the end of this business trip, I want a deal sign. I want to make sure that both sides have agreed on the terms of our agreement, the, the terms of our partnership, and we've signed, we've agreed on the terms, and we've signed on the dotted line, and and now we have this formal document, this legal agreement that says this is how we should work together. Mm-hmm. In Chinese culture, it's almost the process is almost in reverse. Chinese people don't view negotiations as something that ends with a contract. Chinese people culturally view negotiations as something that is ongoing through the life of the partnership or the life of the relationship. And and that's why when Americans think the negotiations have ended, Mm -hmm. Chinese think the negotiations have begun. (laughs) And then what happens is in order to maintain a healthy, collaborative partnership or relationship, there has to be a continuous exchange of goodwill. And this exchange of goodwill is also a very difficult concept to explain to most Americans, because most Americans think exchange of goodwill is an exchange of money, but it's really not. Exchange of goodwill is in China is an exchange of face. It's the giving and receiving of face. Sometimes gift giving and sometimes giving money is a way to give face. But I can tell you one thing that most Americans misunderstand is, is there are a lot of things that are changing very rapidly in China. Uh, the, the entire legal system, is, the economic and financial system is changing. The way that institutions work is changing. I mean, just for example, a few years back, it was illegal to have more than one child, okay? 
now China has a two-child policy. And I don't know if you read it in the news. I heard, I think. Very, very soon, mm -hmm. couples are going to be fined. Taxed, yeah. For not yeah. having a if you tax for yeah, not having yeah, a I know, I know. child. It's insane. I know. I was just hearing about that. <laughs> so, so that's how quickly China has changed. They have changed from penalizing you for having more than one child to now penalizing you for not having more than one child. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah. that's how much China has changed. And that's how much we as most Americans, we don't understand because Chinese live in this environment. And in the U.S., we feel like life is precious and we and, and the government can neither force us to have an abortion, nor can they force us to have a child. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. But but the Chinese people generally don't complain about these things except for the fact that they're impacted financially. Mm. They don't complain about it for moral basis or ethical basis or religious basis. They complain about it only because if it affects their pocketbook. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the that's one of the one of many value differences between Westerners and Chinese is is because of the way that China has evolved over the last 30 years and this whole mantra that Deng Xiaoping says, you know, to get rich is glorious, yeah. even, though he actually, even though he didn't actually say that. Uh, but that's kind of like the mantra. And, and that's just where the whole value system of people in China just doesn't align with most Americans who value things like freedom and liberty and the yeah. right to bear arms stuff like that. So when your fundamental values are misaligned True. And, and you don't take a step back and really focus on the dynamics of how do we create guanxi? How do we facilitate a win-win situation? How do we actually achieve the outcomes that we came to China to achieve without getting on our moral high horse? Once you let your own emotions interfere with the outcomes that you went to China to achieve, then I've seen a lot of foreigners set themselves up for a lot of, you know, it used to be just a lot of frustrations. But in the current political environment, as China has gotten stronger, uh, you could actually get yourself in trouble by expressing a lot of these dissenting mm -hmm. views. Okay. I, I mean, there have been stories um, I mean, this is not just Americans expressing or foreigners expressing dissenting views and, and not getting not able to get their visas renewed, mm -hmm. especially like foreign journalists, but even with Chinese people. So I'll just give you an example. Um, I know people, Chinese people who travel to the Xinjiang region for business and uh, they um, they made some comments on WeChat and Weibo about how there's kind of so much surveillance going on and, and everything is monitored, X, Y, and Z. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of what she posted, but the story is after she came back from Shanghai, her WeChat account had been closed. So it's now a personal risk to your ability to do business in China if you let your own views of morality interfere with 
getting things done in China. And that's one of the things that a lot of foreigners who are what I just call them righteous, they failed. They failed to understand that you're not in China on a mission. Yeah. You're in China to do business. Yeah. Right. Um, you have asked to go to China and China has granted you permission to come to China. Mm-hmm. So just just respect the laws and try to get the business that you want accomplished and don't try to make any moral statements or, or, or anything like that. And and if you can just put that that ego aside, then I think you'll be fine. I mean, China is still very welcoming. A lot of opportunities for people who don't let their own egos and their own values get in the way of what they're trying to accomplish. Like the China Business Cast and want to get involved? We have special offers for supporters of the show, starting from just one U.S. dollar and up. We have something for everyone. Check out all the different ways to engage at www.chinabusinesscast.com slash support. That's www.chinabusinesscast.com slash support. Thanks. Agreed. Yeah, I think um, we've probably both been in those conversations where we hear about, you know, foreigners and especially in China. I'll have to admit, sometimes I've gotten there. I have to say, you know, uh, you know, it comes, it gets on you sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes like the vents or, uh, you know, but it's a totally different mindset. So, yeah, but it's, yeah, we're to focus on the business and realize that, yeah, as a foreigner in China or doing business with China, you should understand that you're allowed to do business. And uh, is that kind of leads into the next question. What are some of the risks uh, as well as, of course, huge rewards. Obviously, this question is is a podcast by itself. But uh, you know what? For doing business in China, you know, um, what are some of these risks and rewards? Well, there's a, there's a lot of risks and there's a lot of rewards. But the 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 saying is no risk, no reward, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, one of the things, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the things again, I think since this is a business podcast. You know, one of the things that I think is really important that a lot of I'm just going to say Americans since I'm American, I'm going to just use that as context. One of the things that a lot of Americans struggle with when they go to China and they're communicating and they're negotiating and they're answering questions, a lot of Americans struggle with being vague. And a lot of Americans will complain that Chinese seem to be vague. And Chinese, uh, Americans are playing that Chinese don't seem to be able to answer a direct question with a direct answer. Um, they'll complain that, you know, I can't get Chinese to speak up and voice their opinions. I mean, there's a lot of things that Americans complain about. And, and what they don't understand is that their approach to communications and negotiations just really doesn't fit into how Chinese people are accustomed to communicating. Uh, now, if you were to read a book, uh, somebody described it as foreigners think, or Americans think in a more linear fashion and, and Chinese think more circular. Uh, but that j- isn't just something that somebody who's studying cultures kind of figured out. If you put that into the back of your mind, where when I'm communicating with somebody in Chinese and, and I'm frustrated, if you just put into context that Chinese think and speak in a circular manner, 
then hopefully you can adjust your own attitude and your own mindset and your own approach to say that, yeah, maybe my linear cause and effect, either or yes and no culture and mentality just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the advice that I give a lot of Americans when they're, especially if they're like leading Chinese people and they're trying to get them to behave a certain way or, or live a certain or do a certain things is, is Chinese are now more and more aggressive. And they will ask a lot of really direct questions and, and they'll be really aggressive about their opinions. Uh, and since I understand fully what Chinese are thinking when they're saying that, like when Chinese are speaking English and then when they switch over to Chinese, I know instantly that what they said wasn't a good translation of what they meant and what was interpreted is further misaligned with what the Chinese were actually trying to say. Okay, so uh, the mistake that foreigners make is they interpret what Chinese people say literally. And so the advice that I always give foreigners is, and this is not a judgment, is you should just assume that Chinese people don't say what they mean and then they don't mean what they say. (laughs) Okay, just assume that. But don't assume it in a bad way. Don't assume it as... Chinese people are liars or Chinese people are disingenuous or Chinese people, you know, just can't give you a straight answer. Just assume that it's cultural and and learn how to adopt some of those cultural behaviors yourself. Because what foreigners, what oftentimes gets Americans in trouble is they just answer the question directly. They say, no, we cannot do that. Or, yes, we must do that. When a lot of times there's advantages to deliberately leaving things vague because operating in an environment of things being vague is how Chinese, even amongst themselves, they struggle with. Mm. So, so, that's, so I'll just tell you a story. Um, the first time I went to Shanghai, this was in 2004, and because I had, I have a lot of personal connections and business connections throughout Asia. So I'm not going to get into the story, but my first week in Shanghai, I had the opportunity to sit in the conference room of David Chang. So you don't know who David Chang is, but I'm going to tell you who he is. David Chang in 2004 was the CEO, the China CEO of Philips China. Mm. So Philips obviously is a large consumer electronics company. They make, uh, they make a lot of medical devices and they make a lot of, you know, they make a lot of different things, appliances, and they're a huge company. And they were successful in China long before a lot of the U.S. were successful in China. Um, and I had the opportunity to sit in David Chang's office in Shanghai. And he was talking to me kind of like, so I'm the nephew of one of his best friends, my mm, uncle. Okay. So so when I first visited China, David welcomed me. He said, okay, this nephew is now coming to China. Uh, I'm the China CEO. Let me meet this young person and give him some advice. And I was sitting in his conference room, and, and I just remember this as clearly as it was yesterday. He said, Gene, in order for you to be successful in China, you have to be able to manage the different shades of gray. 
Mm-hmm. Because in because in China, nothing is black or white, mm-hmm. and and that is that is something that has stuck with me ever since then. And every time I find myself frustrated or confused or even angry about what's happening in China, you know, I've dealt with corruption, I've dealt with backstabbing, I've dealt with deceitful and doing all sorts of corrupt and unethical things in China. I've dealt with all of that. And it's always been going back to something like that, where I, where you just have to remember that in China, you have to be able to manage the different shades of gray. And to me, that means I almost have to not interpret uh, corrupt behavior as corrupt. I have to kind of examine and analyze was I the cause of this corrupt behavior? This is so important in negotiations, and this is one of the things that most Americans don't really understand when they negotiate with Chinese people. So when Americans think that negotiation ends when the contract is signed, this is where they're putting themselves at an extreme disadvantage, because I'll tell you why. If you're negotiating with a Chinese partner and you really because you're in a position of authority, you're bringing in technology that the Chinese really want and the Chinese really need. You feel like you have the leverage and you feel like you have the bargaining power and you use that leverage to push concessions on the people with. I can just tell you, I can just tell you, my friend, that is a mistake. Mm -hmm. And the reason that is a mistake is the way that the Chinese system works. If the Chinese people lose and make concessions on the front end when the contract is signed, they are clever enough to figure out how to get it back on the back end. I call this goodwill extraction. So if you did not extend goodwill initially, but you've decided to work together anyway, Chinese by culture and by nature will always extract from the value chain, because they know the value chain better than you as a foreigner, they will be able to extract what they think is rightfully theirs because they will have their own definition of what is fair and what is not fair. And they feel they were treated unfairly in the initial stages. They won't worry about it because they know, well, these Americans, they don't understand how the system works. They don't know all the back doors. They don't understand where in the value chain I can actually extract additional value and they go and they do that. So what happens is the result is what Americans perceive is they perceive that, oh, uh, this was not really the right partner because I discovered later they were doing a lot of unethical things or, or bad things. But what most Americans or most foreigners don't realize is they have to take responsibility for that. Okay, because if for Chinese, it's a continuous exchange of goodwill and reciprocity. Okay, if the Chinese made all the concessions on the front end and you're not giving them any additional uh, goodwill on the, you know, in the in the process through the course of this relationship, then and they feel they can't extract it from you because you don't seem to understand what they're asking for. Mm. You don't understand. You don't agree with what they're requesting. You don't think what they want is reasonable. The problem is, is they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out how to get what they think is rightfully theirs out of the value chain. Mm. 
and they are patient. And this happens not only at the individual level, but it happens at the macro level. Just think about what's happening in China right now. You know, over the last hundred years, Chinese people feel that they have been invaded, they have been occupied, they have, you know, China has been embarrassed throughout history of colonial, of colonialism, of imperialism, of people dividing up China, saying this is yours, this is yours, this is yours, where as Chinese don't even have a say in, mm. in who gets different parts of their country, right? Mm, yeah. So China has been disrespected through the course of history over the last, let's just say, roughly 100 years. Well, China has the 100-year plan, and they are patient. And you can see on the global stage, China is starting to re-exert its authority and claim what all Chinese people believe are rightfully theirs. Mm. I mean, even, even with the dispute in the South China Sea and freedom of navigation that the U.S. is doing, you know, who is to say what is rightfully whose, mm. right? Um, from the Chinese perspective, all of this was taken from us over the last history. So why should I continue to make these concessions? Especially now that I am powerful and now people need what I have to offer, right? China is... The, you know, depends on how you measure it. They are either the second largest economy or the first largest economy. But for many countries, especially in Asia, they are the largest trading partner. And whether you believe, whatever you think China's motivations are with the one belt, one road and, 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 the, and all of the, um, the things that China is setting up in Asia, you know, they are basically exchanging their goodwill for something in return. And that frightens the hell out of Americans. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is scary. Yeah. And, 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 and what's happening at a macro level over the, let's just say, the last hundred years of history till the present and what's going to happen in the future, that's a of when I go to China as an American and I start negotiating with some local partners and I try to I try to get concessions out of them or whatever. If we, you know, if if there isn't a true continuous exchange of goodwill and reciprocity to deepen the Guanxi relationship with the people that you're working with, it's going to hurt you in the long run. And, and that is the you know, these are I don't know if what I'm saying is politically correct, but these are the things these are the things that most, quote unquote, China business consultants, they don't tell you. True. They just they just give you the very superficial things that you need to do. And they don't tell you how to extend that over the long run based on how you are perceived, what your reputation is, whether your lack of empathy with what Chinese care about actually has a negative impact on your ability to get things done. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of things that I am that I'm now formalizing. So I used to employ all of these kind of methodologies and, and strategies and tactics myself doing business in China, uh, whether it's uh, doing market development, setting up channel partners, or as a consultant working with 
Chinese state-owned enterprises on projects leading performance management systems, uh, you know, teaching Chinese people how to have effective meetings, behavioral changes, implementing new processes. It doesn't really matter what I'm trying to accomplish. It always came down to, am I empathetic to what the Chinese value? And can I align my message with something that is meaningful to them? And in the process of us collaborating, is there a continuous exchange of goodwill? And in my case, the exchange of goodwill was never about money. It was never about gifts. Mm. It was about it was about respect. It was about acknowledgement. It was about the dissemination of information that would help the Chinese do something better for themselves and for their sometimes it was also eating and drinking and playing sports and going to ktvs uh but i did a lot of sports with the people that i work with in china when i was in nanjing i was doing i was on a 40-week project on site with sinopat the chinese state-owned enterprise yeah and i was there on site so i was working with the local salespeople. they didn't speak a word of english yeah but we developed really close guanxi relationships. Uh, and it wasn't because I was giving them money. It was because of the way that I spoke with them, the way that I talked with them. They could feel how sincere and caring I was about what their needs were. Got it. And, and that was really the key. And, and we ended up playing basketball with, with, you know, they like to play basketball. So I played basketball with them. Sometimes they like to go to dinner. We went to dinner, we went to drinking. I mean. We had activities outside of work, which helped us work better together while we're at work. Got it. And, and that's one of the things that um, a lot of Americans don't know do when they engage with their Chinese counterparts. Okay. So, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is great. And um, so I. Just so much, uh, so much to talk about. I wish we had more time, but uh, I think what I'm, I'm interested to talk about is, you know, what, uh, as we said in these interviews, there's so many, China's so big and these generations and cultures, maybe on the business side, how about MNC, you know, Chinese multinationals versus foreign multinationals versus like, you know, you mentioned state-owned enterprises or SOEs. Uh, I mean, I, this has got to be a hard one for you. I mean, is there general tips that you would give uh, listeners on business with these different? I mean, there must be so different, huh? Yeah, well, no, it's actually quite easy to answer. It's just hard to answer in like five or 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so uh, let's just talk about multinationals in China. So uh, I think everybody knows now that the trend in China Let's just talk about strategic human resource management for a second. The trend in China is they don't need China expats. Multinational companies who want to do business in China, they have to hire Chinese people. Mm. Okay. So I can, like 15 years ago or 10 years ago, let's just say 10 years ago, uh, if you were um, any type of senior manager, and you knew the products and you knew the technologies of your company, the company would probably send you to China and you would be an expat manager in China. What has happened is 
all the companies in China have started to realize that these Americans that you know are on this expat package yeah. and they have drivers and they have nannies and their kids go to very expensive American schools they just aren't worth the ROI of having them over there because ultimately if you don't understand the culture and you don't understand the language you actually can't get things accomplished in China and the trend now is that there are so many Chinese nationals who speak English who have multinational experience. Yeah. So I get this question a lot of Americans who want to go to China for business. They want yeah. their companies to send them to China. They want to find a job opportunity yeah. working in China. I just tell them, you know, unless you can discover what value you can deliver in country and market, there's no reason for anybody to bring you to China. Yeah. You know, 15 years ago, your value was the fact that you had a Western face and you yeah. spoke English. Yeah. That, that is no longer the fact, no longer true in China. Now for multinationals doing business in China. So a lot of people who are listening to the podcast may be higher level managers. So like at the director level or the VP level, it's generally still foreigners in China. Uh, your biggest challenge is probably with local talent. Uh, everybody knows that there is a very, very high uh, rate of attrition with Chinese employees. And the perception is Chinese employees are not very loyal. You know, you give them 10 percent more and they'll go to the next competitor. So it's that's the biggest challenge right now. And so if you're a full if you're a foreign multinational operating one of the executives, uh, the that's your biggest challenge. Got it. Okay. And you have to think about, I, I think uh, there's been so much money invested in, and I think McKinsey probably does a, does a pretty good job uh, on how to set up your people performance systems in China. And what ends up happening is, is most companies just have to offer a lot of like Silicon Valley perks. You know, you know, you have the coffee bar and you have a lot of free gifts and you have <laughs> uh, these sales meetings and everybody gets to go and, and they're giving out all of these nice, you know, freebies and stuff like that. And, you you know, you're that's a, it's almost like that is a race to the bottom. Mm. Everybody is trying to I'm not saying don't do those things because it's almost like a prerequisite. But those are not the things that retain employees those are not the things that make employees more loyal. And it definitely is not the things that make employees more valuable over the long run for your business. And, and it's almost the same as anything in business. You have to be empathetic to what the Chinese employees value. And I can tell you there's some misperceptions in China. Yes, they value money. But there's always something people in China value more than money, and that is they value their face. Yep. They value mianzi. <laughs> okay. And the only way to give employees face is to empower them and to make them feel like they're involved in the decision-making process and to create the perception that they have an upward mobility path. So I just I did I do these webinars, Mindset for China business webinars now. And, yeah. and one of the questions that I got in the last webinar was, 
it was really about how do I develop these guanxi relationships with Chinese people without giving money, okay? Or And if I'm working with these Chinese employees, how, you know, so this guy was on the call and he had a, he's just saying he's, he's really frustrated that he can't seem to get his two key people in China to really report what's going on in China. But he's doing everything backwards and he's doing everything wrong. He's basically going into China and all he's doing is he's identifying problems and he's asking for explanations. And so you have to put this into context and imagine what's going on. He's not giving the Chinese people really any opportunity to actually really save face because when this foreign manager travels into China, all he's talking about is problems and no Chinese person wants to kind of quote unquote take responsibility for the problems. They're always going to try to kind of make an excuse or try to explain it's somebody else's fault. And that's just cultural. It's not them not taking responsibility. It's just cultural. So I told him uh, that who the people that you want to really help you monitor and manage what's going on in China, you have to elevate them. Now, when I say elevate them, I don't mean promote them or give them more money. I mean, elevate them within your inner circle. So for example, I just say when you go to China, so he's, I think he's from, I think he's from either, I think he's from Germany, Spain or Germany. I can't remember which one, but you know, when the Germans travel into, I'm just going to use German for an example, because I used to work for a German company in China. So when the German executives, they come to China and they have their sales meetings and then sometimes they'll have a dinner with everybody. And then what generally happens is the Germans will go off and have their own like private kind of socialized social event. You know, they'll go to a, you know, a, a cigar bar and they'll smoke their cigars or, or whatever. And then uh, the Chinese just kind of go home and they're not part of that relationship building process. And I just basically said very simply, if there is somebody that you need to report back to you what's going on, you need to first of all, elevate that person's level of responsibility mm. and you need to bring that person into your inner circle. Because if that person does not feel involved in the decision he or she will only feel that they are part of the problem which is the only thing that you seem to care about and that will actually build a wall between you and the person that you need to trust most to report accurately what's actually going on and that's why i always tell the clients that i advise that you're actually creating this wall You're the reason why you can't seem to get a straight answer. You're the reason why when you're pushing for answers, they seem to not want to tell you the answers. You're the cause of that. And as soon as we as Americans, when we go into China, as soon as we're willing to take that responsibility, then I think we can start breaking down these these barriers and start really getting into a deeper level of guanxi, which will lead to, you know, ultimately greater success as you move forward. Wow. Dean, this has been really uh, valuable. I really appreciate, yeah, like you said, this is really practical and 
and been a really fascinating fast well we might have to get you get you back talk to Shlomo but I think I have to get you back <laughs> if you're willing to this has been fascinating um you mentioned your webinars let's let's talk some things about what you do and how people can find you I think maybe we have to wrap up today's show I know it's also late for you and and your time um how, how yeah so you also have a podcast and what are what are things uh could people do to connect with you more yeah so so when you when the podcast goes out, I, I assume I can like give you my yeah, my yeah. link to yeah, my we, website. We yes. link yeah, well I'll put it on the notes now and then when we pre- publish it, uh we'll put it on there so people can can click on it. Okay. So I'm I wanna make this really short. I know that you know the podcast we don't want to run too long, but but you know, I had been living in Shanghai uh up until last year. And I basically last year my wife and I decided that, you know, there's no perfect time to move back to the U.S. So so last year we just basically quit everything we were doing in, in, in Shanghai and China and we moved back to the U.S. So okay. she was employed at a large multinational company. She basically just submitted a resignation. She moved back. I had started my own cross-cultural performance training, coaching and consulting company. I okay. was actually teaching at Hong Kong University Institute of China Business. I was teaching cross-cultural management to Chinese executives. And I just kind of just basically quit everything, we moved back. And now what I've done is now I'm advising Americans or foreigners on how to do business in China. And okay. uh, recently I launched a series of free webinars. It's called okay. a Mindset for China Business. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, there's one every two weeks. Um, we've already had three. There's a total of nine that are scheduled. We've already had three. The next one will be on September 5th, uh, California time, September 6th, China time. And the next topic is aligning objectives. So each webinar has a separate common engagement for people in China. Like we started off with China Business 101, communications, negotiations. The next one is aligning objectives. And then we get into, you know, Chinese employees, Chinese consumers, partnering, and and just basically different aspects of doing business in China. And if you just go to my website, uh, you'll have it in the link. Uh, You'll be able to register and it's free. Okay. And and the way that I run it is the first kind of 20 to 30 minutes, I kind of do a formal kind of keynote presentation. And then the rest 30 minutes and up to an hour is basically audience. They ask questions and I just provide answers. Some of the examples I gave today were questions that people asked on the last webinar and, and it just came up. And, and so so I was able to share that. Great. Yeah, I, we'll link it on the show notes, but I think by this show might not be online, but before the fifth, but uh, I'm sure it'll be another one or, or, uh, or the schedule will be there. Yeah, no, that, that's fine. Okay. Um, like I said, there, you know, September 5th is only the fourth one and there's going to be five more perfect. after that. Perfect. So, so okay. This, perfect. This is an ongoing thing. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. All right, Gene. And then, yeah, we'll link it up and thanks again. And I think we'll have, definitely, I think this will be one of our more popular shows. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of room for us to do another with you. If you're willing, yeah, or able to. Okay. Oh, I would be happy to. Okay. Um, it was nice talking to you, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.